It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Live across this great country and live today and tomorrow from Indianapolis, Indiana. Very happy to be here and even more glad that you're here with me. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day if you miss any part of the broadcast as it airs. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's our live air time. And then that podcast on demand, round the clock, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. Let's give you a heads up on where we are going today. Later this hour, Dr. Manny Alvarez from the Fox Medical Team. He will be here talking about Delta variant, some concerns about new mandates, new restrictions. We talked to Dr. Siegel yesterday. We'll get Dr. Manny's take today. Coming up in the next hour, Senator Mike Braun, Republican from right here in Indiana. I'm not in his state often. I happen to be here today. Got a speaking gig tomorrow out here. And so I'm looking forward to resuming our conversation with Senator Mike Braun. And then we will just travel slightly up the road through Illinois into Wisconsin and talk to Congressman Mike Gallagher. He might be extra pleased in an extra chipper mood today because of what happened in Milwaukee last night in the NBA championship. Game six, a 4-2 to series win for the Bucks, First time in 50 years. Not a big pro basketball guy here, but happy for Bucks fans. And Giannis, their star. He seems like a pretty great guy, very likable. And then, finally, back to the show here, in our 5 o'clock hour, the happy hour on the East Coast, Martha McCallum is going to stop by, our colleague from Fox News. And we always enjoy chatting with Martha. Let's bring you stats through a Fox News alert. Coronavirus cases, 34.1 million and counting. That's confirmed. Real numbers much higher. And those cases are significantly up over the last two weeks. The death toll, which is coming up at a slower pace, and we talked about that yesterday, the very welcome decoupling from huge case spikes, from huge death spikes, a lot of that is thanks to the vaccines. Natural immunity as well, but the vaccines playing an absolutely integral role in that. And that's something to celebrate. But the death toll still climbing. Here in the United States currently from COVID, 608,717 dead. In the meantime, we are just about 50 minutes away from the closing bell on the East Coast of New York. The Dow is up 270 points to 34,787. So that big meltdown day on Monday, basically a full recovery now on the Dow. We'll keep an eye on that as the hour unfolds. Now, before we return to COVID-related issues, and of course we will touch on that with Dr. Manny, there's a lot of other stuff in the news. 
that I want to make sure that we don't miss. We've been covering this Texas runaway Democrat story, right? The fleabaggers is what they were called. I like that, that nickname, that moniker, because circa 2010, 2011, that range, you had the Tea Party movement and the left very nastily decided to smear Tea Partiers as teabaggers. Remember that? They thought that was very clever because it's a reference to something that would, like, make sixth-grade boys chuckle, right, and snicker. So they decided, okay, the Tea Partiers are teabaggers. Let's call them that. And then you had some Democratic lawmakers in a number of states, Wisconsin and, yes, in fact, Indiana, flee their states to try to avoid votes and block quorum. It's exactly what the Texas Democrats are doing now. And so conservatives picked up on the teabagger nickname and called these Democrats the delinquent runaway Democrats, fleabaggers, which was kind of funny. So you've got these fleabagging Texas Democrats who are in D.C. One of the lawmakers actually tweeted out asking for money and support, of course, because this is what the stunt is truly about, and she called herself, in her own tweet, she called herself brave. I'm one of the brave Texas Democrats. And it's like, nah, it's, it's not brave. There's nothing brave about any of this. You're staying at a hotel in Washington, D.C., shirking your duties and refusing to do your job. That's what's happening. And in the process, you're part of a big, exciting, super spreader COVID event as well. We'll come back to that in a second. But because so much of the media is behind these folks, right, they're rooting for them. They're on board. They at every opportunity are talking about how the Democrats are trying to save democracy and the coverage is just glowing. They frame every issue exactly how the Democrats would want because they're Democrats, right? They're just on the same team. They're acting accordingly. They do so all the time. The whole COVID thing is a very inconvenient hiccup for the narrative. That's for certain. I think that they're doing themselves no favors with some of their social media presence in the way that they're trying to promote themselves and present themselves to voters, especially back home in Texas. But another way that the media and activists are trying to do these Texas Democrats a solid is by lying incessantly about what's actually happening back in Austin, where these Democrats are not, even though that's where their job is. So they've lied a lot about what's in the elections bill, which is no surprise because this was the playbook for Georgia as well. Right? They call it Jim Crow. They say it's the end of democracy. It's going to strip people of the right to vote. All of this stuff, it's just nonsense. It's untrue. And we've spent a fair amount of effort here on the show debunking it. Because substance and the merits and the truth, that should all matter. More than any overheated rhetoric. But they're going back. It didn't really work in Georgia, by the way. They didn't stop the law. They did trigger some self-inflicted wounds and boycotts and losing the All-Star game, which was a terrible decision by Major League Baseball. And ultimately, in spite of the huge avalanche of lies and demagoguery, the law is popular. And some of the key provisions of the law are exceptionally popular in Georgia. And I think we're probably going to see, to one extent or another, a repeat of that failure in Texas. But they want to milk this for as many campaign dollars and media-glorified TV and radio appearances and tweets as they possibly can as they bravely 
eat salads in Washington, D.C. and post photos of their underwear in their hotel room. Those are things that are happening while calling themselves brave, while testing positive for COVID, having flown on charter jets with no masks on. All right, it's going, it's going great, guys. The other thing that they're lying about, the media, the Democrats, some of these activists, these leftists, it's not just the elections bill in Texas. It's also some other things in the special session that the Republicans are trying to get done, including a tweak to an anti-critical race theory piece of legislation. So Texas had already passed a bill banning CRT, but in the process of banning CRT, critical race theory, I view that, and I think most conservatives do and critics of it, as a broad understanding of sort of intense, racialized, intersectionality, left-wing indoctrination, where the racial component is a fixation, and where certain people, based on their skin color, are reduced to sort of race essentialism. They're taught that it's an extremely important part of who they are, and it makes them either bad inherently or part of some big, evil, awful system that they are a part of because of their skin color, or that they're a victim or part of an oppressed class because of it. Like, they were born into this deeply unfair thing, and to all act accordingly, and the suspicion and the resentment that that all generates among kids is toxic. So that's what opponents object to, myself included. Then you've got various state legislatures and efforts around the country to combat or oppose critical race theory. And I think it's fine to have a debate about the, uh, the specifics or the particulars of any bill. And is this the right move? Does this go too far? Should this thing be banned? But in Texas, the original bill, while banning critical race theory, included a bunch of other things that ought to be taught to make sure and try to blunt some of the left-wing criticism that is, oh, and they do this all the time. I saw Ibrahim X. Kendi was tweeting the other day about how, see, uh, this poll shows the vast majority of Americans believe that students should be taught about slavery. Yeah, no one's arguing that they shouldn't. They're relying on straw men to pretend that critical race theory opponents just don't want anything untoward taught at all about bad parts of our history and actual racial inequality, bigotry, etc. They just want to whitewash the whole thing. They don't want any difficult truths taught or any unpleasantness taught. That's what the accusation is. And it's a straw man. It's untrue. That stuff is, is already being taught, as it should be. What people object to is this new, pernicious line of thinking and inculcation. And I think this is one of their deflections where they try to say, aha, this is actually what they're all about. So to try to avoid that accusation, the lawmakers threw in a whole bunch of stuff that ought to be covered and that was not to be conflated with a ban on CRT. But then what happened was it turned out that a lot of the things that they threw into that legislation, it was already not just suggested but mandatory in Texas curricula. And so in order to clean up their bill, they're trying to, and the state Senate just passed, basically a fix to that bill that would explicitly not preclude the teaching of any of these other important subjects. They wrote that specifically in this new version. 
but that act unto itself is already being twisted beyond recognition. So you see a lot of posts going on and people outraged. And a lot of this, I think, again, is just like, oh, look over here. Don't pay attention to the embarrassment about the Texas Democrats in Washington. Look at what the Texas Republicans are doing in Austin. So there's a Bloomberg piece. There's a HuffPost piece. I see Sharon Eiffel from the NAACP. She shared the the HuffPost story. This is what it's about. Not CRT, but banning the truth. Texas Republican-dominated state Senate has passed a bill to eliminate a requirement that public schools teach that the Ku Klux Klan is morally wrong. That's her tweet. A top producer at MSNBC tweets this, The Texas Senate passed legislation that would end requirements that public schools include writings on women's suffrage and the civil rights movement in social studies classes. Among the figures dropped, Susan B. Anthony and Martin Luther King Jr., Here's what the Huffington Post story reads. In a new political low in Texas, the Republican-dominated state Senate has passed a bill to eliminate a requirement that public schools teach that the Ku Klux Klan and its white supremacist campaign of terror are morally wrong. The cut is among some two dozen curriculum requirements dropped from the new measure, along with studying Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the works of United Farm Workers leader Cesar Chavez, Susan B. Anthony's writings about the women's suffragist movement, and Native American history. So if that's what you read and you saw these tweets and everyone's going viral, everyone's sharing them, look at these Republicans, and you read that first paragraph or two from the HuffPost story, it's like, wow. That seems like a massive overcompensation. This does not seem like a productive way to oppose critical race theory. What's going on? Here's the minor issue. It's a lie. It's not true. Rich Lowry from National Review had a really good lengthy Twitter thread on this. He said this story widely amplified, saying that Texas is eliminating a requirement to teach about the KKK is completely dishonest. What happened is that Democrats added a bunch of concepts and documents that school kids should know in the anti-CRT bill that passed the House a few weeks ago. The list was incredibly detailed and extensive when it's the role of State Board of Education to make these decisions, not the legislature, to get into the weed, into the weeds rather, in the specifics of the curriculum. Many of the items are already covered in the curriculum. It was widely expected that the Senate would pare down the House bill, and that's what it did. Rich writes, this emphatically does not mean that Texas is banning teaching about the KKK or saying anything else. And to pretend otherwise is misinformed or lying. The bill does not subtract anything from the current curriculum and says so explicitly. And this now he's quoting from this bill. Nothing in this section may be construed as limiting the teaching of or instruction in the essential knowledge and skills adopted under this subchapter. So they were explicit about it. And what's interesting, one of the Twitter uh, threads and Twitter accounts that I follow, A.G. Hamilton 29, he went even more into the weeds and looked into the context. A lot of these were already required topics. And so now, by paring back this superfluous element of the anti-CRT bill, People who hated that bill in the first place and said it was a terrible bill, they are now complaining that by paring back part of the bill, now they're banning these things from being taught. It's just not true at all. And Rich Lowry goes through the actual state curriculum, which is available online, 
and he cites in his Twitter thread example after example of the curriculum requiring teaching about these supposedly eliminated subjects. The KKK, MLK, women's suffrage, Cesar Chavez, Native Americans, all of these things that HuffPost said are now going to be eliminated from the Texas curriculum are affirmatively already in the curriculum and are still in the curriculum and are not changed at all by anything happening in the Texas State Senate right now. So it is a giant head fake by people who know better and are lying to try to get you to look over here and believe something that's not true, or people who just jump on the bandwagon and don't think too hard about it and just read something bad about Republicans and assume it must be true. Oh, there they go again. Well, I wanted to fact check this situation and bring you the actual reality with the real context. And that's what we've done. A few more things, by the way, about those fleabagger Democrats who are in Washington, D.C. right now. We'll get to that as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Speaking of this uh, PR meltdown for these Texas runaway Democrats with their super spreader event and their p- positive COVID tests, not just amongst their group, but also at the White House and at Capitol Hill. When this was all coming out, our colleague Peter Ducey asked Jen Psaki about this. And he mentioned those photos of all these lawmakers on their private chartered jets without masks on, smiling, should they have worn the masks. Here's what Circleback said in response, cut eight. I don't think I'm, I'm going to uh, be in a position here to assess what safety precautions they may or may not have taken. Uh-huh. Of course you're not, Jen. Uh, we, we can't. We can't even offer a minor rebuke of these lawmakers who were flouting the federal guidelines, right? If I tried to take my mask out or off on my flight yesterday to Indianapolis, it could have been a big problem for me. They're required for the little people when we fly commercially. But these guys get on their plane, no masks. There's a little super spreader event, and the White House cannot even chide. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share them lightly because i mean they're just they're trying to save democracy couldn't possibly comment i'll have to get back you will circle back to that one dr manny alvarez joins me when we come back guy benson show living the bream is a podcast hosted by fox news channels shannon bream sharing inspirational stories personal anecdotes and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com america's listening to fox news Thank you. 
GuyBensonShow.com. Back here on the show from Indianapolis today and tomorrow. I'm Guy Benson, and glad you're with us. Joining me now is Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor and senior health analyst. Doctor, great to have you back. Hi, Guy. I want to ask you, I've had a few conversations recently with friends, and sometimes these are ongoing back-and-forth exchanges, about the vaccines and the safety of the vaccines and certain concerns that people have. And uh, one of the concerns that comes up is long-term effects that aren't known. And I know we've tackled this before. Most side effects, significant especially, of any type of vaccine comes up in the process of the trials with tens of thousands of people. Now we have many millions of people who have gotten these vaccines. And it's generally scientifically known that it's just within the first few weeks or months, major red flags would fly. That has not been the case with these vaccines. Another one that seems to be going around and it crops up every so often, involves fertility. I know this is part of your your expertise, is uh, right. women and their fertility. Uh, and uh, some of my friends, I have a couple friends actually who are pregnant, and they were wrestling with the question, should they get vaccinated while they're pregnant? What effect could that have on the unborn child? If you could just address those questions, I think that they tend to come up And I can understand. I mean, if you're a pregnant person, if you're a pregnant woman, you're thinking about becoming pregnant, you're hoping to get pregnant in the future. If you start to see information about this crossing your screen from time to time, it's completely reasonable and justifiable to want good answers to those types of questions. How do you address those concerns from your expert medical vantage point? (laughs) You know, it's funny because I just finished uh, giving a seminar to uh, 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 women about the efficacy and the uh, issues of the COVID, uh, uh, not only vaccine, but the COVID disease uh, in, in, in pregnant women, uh, because this is my wheelhouse. Um, you know, from a personal point of view, I could tell you that I run one of the largest hospitals in the Northeast uh, when it comes to women's health uh, in a women's hospital. And we had the vast or the greatest experience with pregnant patients and COVID. And we published uh, a peer review article uh, in our first experience with COVID and pregnancy. And the bottom line is this, if you get COVID uh, and you're pregnant, the complications are huge. Uh, you're talking uh, issues that deal with premature uh, premature births. You're dealing with issues of potential harm to the fetus. Um, so, the, you know, for a pregnant woman to get COVID or, you know, big fulmin and COVID, the complications are huge. And as I said, we publish our data in a peer-reviewed journal, um, uh, very reputable, uh, showing our experience. So the bottom line is this. If you are pregnant, um, you know, should you get the COVID vaccine? The answer is yes. Now, this is a conversation to be had with your obstetricians. Typically, we hold off on any vaccination in the first trimester of pregnancy. And that's that goes with, for the flu vaccine. That goes for a lot of things. However, past that, absolutely, it is absolutely safe to take the COVID vaccine, especially the Pfizer, especially the Moderna. 
I would I, I still have second thoughts about the J and J vaccine for pregnant women. But as far as Pfizer is concerned, and because of the methodology that the vaccine um, is and and the way that it works, it is absolutely safe to take in pregnancy. And and I think that once you see the data coming out of the CDC, uh, which is uh, conducting a very you know national trial on hundreds of women and COVID experience and COVID vaccine, we're going to find the same results. So that that is a fact. The second fact about pregnancy and women is that all this all of this misinformation in regards to if this is going to create an inflammatory response that is going to create the the women infertile. That is just not true, not factual. There's no data to support that, and absolutely not. I would even argue that it would be more detrimental to a woman to get the full COVID disease. And as far as the the inflammatory response that you get from the COVID disease itself, as so far as your reproductive future, you know, entails. But but as far as the vaccine is concerned, absolutely not. Incredibly safe, incredibly protective, and nothing to be worried about. So and just to so that, just to bottom answer. line, so that's just to bottom to line, yeah. both of those. Number one, it is safe for pregnant women. Very safe for pregnant women to get the vaccine, and it is much more dangerous to a pregnancy uh, for a mother to contract COVID than any concern that they might have about the vaccine, and the vaccines do not affect fertility. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. You can't over, you know, a thousand percent. And to make that point personal, a buddy of mine, he and his wife, friend from college, they were both fully vaccinated. She is pregnant. And they were among the Americans who had a breakthrough infection. So they were both double vaccinated, fully immune, and yet they were exposed to COVID. They both got COVID. And the, the good news, as you so often see in these breakthrough cases, you never want to see a breakthrough case, but they, they do happen. Their cases, and she was, of course, very worried as a pregnant woman that she had COVID, right? Because of exactly what you just said. You're worried about the baby. Is the baby going to be okay? I thought I was inoculated. I I didn't think I was going to possibly get this infection. The great news is because she was vaccinated, this bout of COVID that she had and this breakthrough infection, both of them, very mild, moderate cases. They all recovered very quickly. The baby's fine. And that's yeah, that is an example. Some people might say that's proof that the vaccines don't work. They want to focus on some of the breakthrough infections. I think the opposite is true. And, I, you know, it's not just me thinking this is what medical experts keep saying. This is proof that the vaccines do work because that would have been a much scarier potential situation for this mother and her unborn child if she hadn't been vaccinated and therefore had a, a much worse experience with full-blown COVID, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, again, from, from, from our presentations and, and the number of patients that I took care of and my team did, when we had it, you know, we had to develop protocols to say, listen, listen, we have this, you know, let's say 30, 32-week pregnant patient who's a respiratory failure, has COVID. Let's deliver the baby. We cannot afford to keep the baby in. So when you look at the experience of a mother who gets full fulminant COVID disease, um, and she's pregnant in the third trimester, you really are talking about very dangerous parameters um, so that getting the vaccine, um, it, it's the right thing to do. Let's talk about masks, because it seems like with Delta variant, people are 
in some ways, there are people talking as if Delta variant is this brand new, complete game changer where we're resetting everything and all the knowledge we thought we have is now blown up and Delta is so, so scary. I'm not saying that it's insignificant. It seems very clear that it's significantly more contagious than like original COVID or whatever you want to call it. it. The data does not show that it is more virulent or more intense and causes greater sickness. And it also shows the overwhelming data that the vaccines are quite effective against Delta variant uh, and, and certainly against hospitalization, severe cases, death. And yet the way that you're hearing a lot of people talk about it and, and people getting very concerned, including, including people who've already been fully vaccinated, you would think that it's much scarier than at least what I'm perceiving it to be. And a number of jurisdictions and public officials are now at least threatening or hinting or already going in this direction of moving backwards on mask mandates for fully vaccinated people, other restrictions. We're seeing people recommending masks on children as young as three years old. What's your medical opinion on this? Look, uh, you know, when you look at the, the, these variants, uh, as, as you said, nothing really changes about the disease, with the exception that the variant is more contagious or rapidly contagious, right? It's, it's easy to get. And, and if you have vulnerable underlying medical conditions, yes, it's going to give you a severe case of COVID, which could ultimately, you know, put you in the hospital and almost kill you. That's a fact. However, Here's the argument that's going to happen, and we're going to have to come to, to, to realization. You're never going to get 100% of the American public to vaccinate itself. You're never. Right. I mean, so the question is, let's say you have 60, maybe even at, in, 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 at best 70% of the American population vaccinated, and we know that people that are vaccinated don't have to worry about these variants, whatever variants you throw at yourself, you're not going to end up in the hospital, you're not going to end up intubated. The public health policy that is being created right now is that, okay, we only have to worry about the 30%, and therefore we're going to alter the way that people behave based on that 30%. The question that many people have is, is that fair? You know, if 30% of the population, for whatever reason, whether it's religious or personal belief or whatever they do, that, you know, this is a free country. They have the autonomy to do whatever they want to do. And I understand that, you know, from a health perspective, sometimes that's a disappointing view. You know, are we going to run the country base that because 30% of the population refuses to participate in this vaccination protocol, mm-hmm. are we going to therefore change the behavior of the 70% of the people that took the shot. And these are the things that are making the American public very angry. You know, school children, uh, three years old, uh, you know, cities that uh, are now at their cap in vaccinations, where you know that you're not going to move the needle because of the populace doesn't want to take the vaccine. Does the rest of the people have to adhere or live in a world where the 30% rules and the 70% really loses the chance to be free? That is the conundrum that we live under. And I don't know what's going to happen. No, but I say, that, I say the answer should be no. I mean, my, my resounding well, answer is no. Right, no, the answer is, I mean, of course, the answer should be no, but, you know, the, you know, if you want to get sick, well, then that's your prerogative. And it's very sad, you know, comment to make. But 
I shouldn't be altering my life. You know, to me, I, I always think of this as the smoking, right? Remember, you know, when we started eliminating smoking and, and, okay, we all know that smoking is bad for you. And we took smoking out of public places and you took smoking out of this and you can't smoke in airplanes. Okay, it happened. But people can go to the park and smoke a cigarette if they want to. That's their prerogative. You know, we're getting to the point on these mass issues where now you are focusing on the 30%, and because of the 30%, the 70% that the people that did the right thing and want to go in a free way, in a, in a non-worry way, they know that if they get a case of COVID, it's going to be mild, no big deal, I can manage this, let's move on, this doesn't become a medical emergency. But we're living the life of the 30%. And if the government and if Biden wants to just enforce that and say until 100% of the population, nothing is going to change. No, you're going to drive people crazy. And then people aren't going to stand for it. I think they're sick of it. This is going to be this for a long, long time. Manny, Dr. Manny, I want to ask you briefly on the mask point for young children. Fauci says that that's the right thing to do. The American Association of Pediatrics even came out and said, yes, in schools, even you know, three, four, five-year-olds should be masked. I'm not a doctor. I've only done reading, but that seems like a crazy overreaction. I wonder what you think. Well, listen, school systems right now are, uh, you know, it's all about teacher protection. And and I kind of understand teacher protection, but the kids are the least of your worries. If you have parents that have been vaccinated, uh, you know, if you have a small child who's not eligible for vaccine, if you live in a community that has high vaccination rates, uh, if you do the right thing, uh, you shouldn't be worried about a three-year-old or a four-year-old contaminating anybody. Now, if the teachers um, again, getting back to the 30%, if you have a school exactly. system where the teachers, if the, if, the, if the 30% is part of the, you know, is, if the 30% is part of the punish the kids. Don't punish the kids. Don't punish the kids. That is exactly totally. the point. That's Manny, exactly I want to ask you one last question. We only have a few minutes left, and I mentioned this yesterday with Dr. Siegel as well. There seems to be a narrative right now among some people who are critical of Fox News. They don't like our network. They never have. They're trying to pretend like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some memo went out that we're all of a sudden in favor of the vaccine, and it's this heel turn, a 180, and I've been tweeting as I have for months in favor of the vaccine, and people are responding, oh, you must have gotten the memo, it's too little, too late, blood's on your hands, you're already complicit, all this stuff. And to me, it's just it's it's crazy. There's no memo. I didn't get any memo. I've been pro vaccine from the very beginning. I can't think of anything more I could have done to support the vaccinations and the Fox medical team yourself and Siegel and Sapphire and Neshwa. All of you have been everywhere on our network, radio, TV, you know, Fox News Channel, Fox Business. Everywhere I look up, you guys are there talking favorably and giving truthful analysis about these vaccines. And that's been true ever since the vaccines came into existence. I'm just it. it, I guess I do resent people trying to now rewrite history and pretend that you haven't been doing the work in support of the the vaccines that I know you've been doing for months. And I, I just wonder if you've seen that or you're tuning out that noise. We have about a minute left. No, I, listen, I, I think that the critics of Fox News will always be there, but the, the facts are the facts. 
you know, Fox News was one of the first networks to really put together a comprehensive team of uh, experts, uh, not only including myself and Dr. Siegel and Dr. Sapphire, but other people uh, basically talking about everything that had to do with COVID. If you Google COVID and Fox News and all the news that we have, all the news stories that we have done, they've always been very consistent. They've been consistent about the virus, the spread, the vaccine efficacy, the hard work that, uh, you know, the government officials were doing, uh, the testing, uh, I mean, you name it. And also we have been, I mean, I personally have been involved in many stories where we have really, you know, criticized uh, fake news when it comes to some of the treatments methodologies that were, you know, you know, circling around in the beginning of this epidemic. So I think that as a network, I'm very proud of the work that the leadership has put together and the people and the talent that has done the asking the right questions. Of course, you know, the one thing about Fox News is very transparent in, in its news cycle. So I think that, you know, I'm very proud of, of, of fostering good information as well as all my peers. Yes. And I think the leadership has shown that. And, you know, and, and doctor, just from my perspective, I just want to say, from my perspective, as someone who asks the questions, you very generously come on and your your medical colleagues come on all the time and have for months. So some of the haters you're never going to convince, but just especially in this moment, I just want to set the record straight of not some Johnny-come-lately thing. We've been doing it for months, and Dr. Manny Alvarez, you've been a big part of it, and we appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again soon because it's not going away. We're going to keep talking about it here on The Guy Benson Show. Energetic, informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show, just talking vaccines with Dr. Manny. Here's Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. That just, uh, this just came across. Listen. So here's, I think, the the most important thing with the data. If you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. If you look at the people that are being admitted to hospitals, uh, over 95% of them are either not fully vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. And so these vaccines are saving lives. Yes, they are. Senator Mike Braun from Indiana joins me when we come back. Another hour straight ahead. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Middle hour underway live on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time every day. The podcast, should you miss any of it, is free. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow had a good day, up 286 points, closing at 34,798. We are joined now by U.S. Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana. And as I've mentioned a few times today, I am doing the show live from 
Indianapolis, Indiana, the Capitol. I'll be here today and tomorrow. So, Senator, it is always good to have you here. It's especially good to have you here when the show is coming from your home state. Uh, what was the uh, what was a good fortune to have you in uh, Indianapolis today? <laughs> I'm here for a conference, and I've got an event that I'm speaking at tomorrow, and had a great time. Had a really fun dinner out last night. The view from my hotel room is gorgeous. It's a great town, a great city, and a state filled with extremely nice people. So uh, I'm glad to be here, even just for a few days. Well, very good. I agree with all that. So uh, a lot of stuff happening out here in D.C. while you're there. Yes. In, uh, a sane state, practical place like uh, Indiana. <laughs> so things got a little wild yesterday during a hearing, pretty hostile. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Rand Paul, your Republican colleague in the Senate, went at it during a hearing. Here's just a little taste of how personal it got. Very snippy. Cut two. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. The gain-of-function research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. That is not... get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. I'm not obfuscating the truth. So Fauci uh, really going after Rand Paul there. And what's interesting in the accusation here, and it's about so-called gain-of-function research and whether Fauci and the NIH and the U.S. government funded some of that research. Josh Rogan from the Washington Post tweeted this yesterday after the exchange. Hey, guys, Rand Paul was right and Fauci was wrong. The NIH was funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but NIH pretended it didn't meet their gain-of-function definition to avoid their own oversight mechanism. Sorry, not sorry, if that doesn't fit your favorite narrative. That's the Washington Post's Josh Rogan siding with Rand Paul. I don't think Rand Paul's going to get Fauci on perjury charges. There's enough gray area here. But that was one of the big blow-ups from yesterday. You were there, Senator. What was your takeaway not just from that exchange necessarily, but Fauci's performance, because unsurprisingly, it's very polarized, the reaction to it. So I was watching that actually from my office, because generally I come in about 15 to 20 minutes after uh, Rand Paul, and by the time he is done with Fauci, Fauci's not in a very good mood. But uh, when I watched it, uh, he is getting himself into a corner. I didn't know uh, the tweet from uh, uh, Washington Post there. That would pretty well nail it in the sense that he is getting, I think, on this one issue of the origin and how the NIH, and especially his particular agency within it, was so part and parcel of what happened. And then apologizing early on uh, for the Chinese government, uh, World Health Organization being so close with it, all of that is flipped the other way. And it would be different if it wasn't in the context of what I mentioned to Fauci when I talked to him in that, you know, he's been all over the place in terms of any issue surrounding COVID. So the credibility factor uh, was uh, weakening uh, a long time ago. Uh, obviously, he likes to, you know, uh, express his opinion, but I thought Rand really had him in a difficult spot. And whether I don't think uh, there will be perjury issues brought against him because that would have to be initiated by the folks that have been tolerating that. Uh, I think he is down to where his credibility rating 
is getting close to a one on a scale of one to ten. Uh, yeah, except among that. except among Democrats who kind of worship him, and he seems to like that worship. He revels in it. He's on TV constantly. I have grown more hostile toward him. I was never a Fauci hater. I respect him still in a lot of ways, but the fact that he is more or less admitted to at least telling white lies about masks telling a white lie about herd immunity in order to manipulate public opinion and sort of like adjust people's expectations and that sort of like expectations management rather than just telling us the truth. You add that on top of his downplaying of the lab leak theory early and now saying, well, he didn't really downplay it. I mean, there's a credibility problem there. So I did want to ask you, since you were part of that hearing that got a lot of attention yesterday, uh, Briefly, go ahead, because I have one other subject that I want to get to. And I ask him uh, real quickly uh, two areas. Uh, how close is his relationship with uh, Facebook and uh, Zuckerberg? And basically said he's on an email uh, relationship, if not a phone call basis. I also ask him and Walensky, would either of you ever mandate vaccines uh, for kids going into grade school? And they gave the typical two-step of that, well, it depends on the data. And uh, they're on record there as being wobbly as well. Let's see what happens if that becomes an issue down the road. Okay, Senator. Meanwhile, there is news just breaking out of the U.S. Senate minutes ago, the Senate voting to block what Senator Schumer wanted, which was to open debate, a cloture vote to get onto an infrastructure bill. You and I have talked about the infrastructure negotiation and the infrastructure deal that was bipartisan, and and we, we both actually are fairly positively disposed to the broad outline of it. But Schumer wanted to, he sort of set this deadline. We are going to get onto that bill, and we're going to start the process and have that debate starting today. We're going to have the vote, and they didn't have the votes. They needed 60. They only got, I think, 49 to get that process underway. And part of the reason for that, and I know this might seem silly to just an average American listening, like it seems so obvious, Even the Republicans who were involved in the negotiation and firmly support the deal that's emerging, like Rob Portman, for example, came out from Ohio, and he said, there's no bill. We haven't written a bill. The bill is still being negotiated. There is not a product to actually open debate on. And yet Schumer was demanding this cloture vote to start on a bill that doesn't even exist yet. It seems like a no-brainer for Republicans to say, no, we are not going to debate something that doesn't exist yet. Well, one thing you're seeing in general, where I think uh, Mitch McConnell was pretty much an expert at managing the clock, here the Dems, and especially Biden, wanted to toy with bipartisanship. I think it was mostly toying when they did the rescue plan, because that didn't last long, not one Republican vote on the COVID relief package. Here everybody needs and knows that we need uh, infrastructure doing something that has hard pay-fors, it's got broad support. But when you gamble away uh, trying to kind of dupe you into uh, squishy pay-fors and then linking the two, uh, I would have never been for anything where they announced ahead of time that they were going to spend $3.5 trillion on soft infrastructure through budget reconciliation. To me is where any Republicans that go along with this, even if they get solid pay-fors in it, I think you're accommodating 
kind of a bait and switch, a, uh, a process that's been belabored, and they were going to do anyway. And they've spent some political capital along the way. Yeah, well, and, and not only that, Senator, I mean, just setting aside the point that there wasn't even a bill to get onto. So every Republican said no today. And they're, oh, look, they blocked the infrastructure. Let, let's see what the actual final bill looks like. You mentioned the $3.5 trillion, which is going to be Democrats only, reconciliation, whatever that dollar amount ends up being. Schumer had also set a deadline for this week on that. And now it looks like they don't have the vote. So they're punting it into August. And they're saying hopefully we'll get to that in August. So maybe things aren't quite working out the way Senator Schumer uh, was hoping that they would at least thus far senator mike braun here in indiana appreciate your time sir thank you thank you guy and with that we will step aside the guy benson show is back shortly fresh conservative talk guy benson show from the fox news podcasts network download and listen to the untold story with martha mccallum the host of the story on fox news channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com it was a lot of thinking a lot of soul searching and i've experienced this before in rio 2016 i did not have my mom or or designated PCA to work with me, and I fell apart. So I know what would have happened if I had gone to Tokyo without my mom. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. That was the voice of Becca Myers. Yesterday, in this hour, we brought her plight to your attention. If you hadn't seen it already, there was the Washington Post story about this, where this Paralympian, blind and deaf, one of the best Paralympic athletes in the world, extremely decorated. She's won multiple golds. She has withdrawn from Team USA, is not going to the Paralympics in Tokyo because they are not allowing her the small needed accommodation of having a guardian, an assistant with her, in this case her mother, to help. She can't see or hear. She's going to a brand new city trying to compete. Imagine the magnitude of that challenge. But because of COVID, there's pushback and policies on the Japanese end that won't allow it. And it also sounds like the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee did not handle this well. And were sort of avoiding the problem for as long as they possibly could and forced her into this impossible decision to give up her dream, perhaps her final real shot at the Paralympics, who knows, because of these rules which is ridiculous. And the argument that's being made is, well, and some people are actually saying this, there's going to be one assistant who can help her, except that one assistant's going to be assigned to nearly three dozen athletes in total on Team USA, including nine who are vision impaired or blind. Do you think one person helping nine blind people is going to be sufficient, especially for Becca, who also can't hear? I was actually thinking more about her story last night. Imagine how terrifying it must be if you are born deaf and then you are slowly losing your eyesight. Her eyesight had this degenerative condition and it deteriorated and went away over time. Having either of those disabilities would be a real challenge for anyone to have one and then the other one arrives. Terrifying. And she told the story about in Rio where she was in her hotel room. She didn't even know how to go get food. 
and she had to basically come get saved by her parents, there's an easy way. She has thrived with the assistance of her mother. And for whatever reason, the various powers that be blaming each other are saying that it's beyond their control. This accommodation cannot be made. And if there's one thing that has made me happy concerning this story, it is the unification of the American reaction in her support. We're a polarized country. We're angry at each other all the time. At least that's the way it seems a lot of the time. But going through social media and scrolling and looking at the reactions from people all across the spectrum, I'm not sure I saw a single example of an American who read her situation, read the details, and came to any conclusion other than the fact that this is unfair, unjust, small-minded, ridiculous. For example, Becca and her family, the Myers, they live in Maryland. So one of Maryland's senators, both of their U.S. senators, of course, are Democrats. It's a very blue state. Chris Van Hollen tweeted this yesterday. Becca should never have been asked to choose between her safety and her dream. The Paralympic Committee extends, quote, essential personnel status to golfers' caddies and equestrian grooms. Why not personal care assistance of Paralympians? The Paralympic Committee has got to do better. That's what Van Hollen, Democratic senator, tweeted from her state. How about the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who's been a guest on this show several times? Quote, it is shameful that after earning her rightful place, Becca is being deprived of her ability to compete in Tokyo. The United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee should immediately reverse its decision. Bipartisanship. I tweeted, if nothing else, Becca Myers is uniting the country in her support. She's earned it. She's proven herself to be one of the elite Paralympic athletes in the world. And to have these Olympics, I understand it's a strange time and there's COVID and all of that. I get it. But this woman deserves a lot better. And there are people who keep passing the buck and making excuses, and it's got to stop. And I hope that even though she's probably very sad and very frustrated, you can read it in her quotes and the statement that she put out, you could hear it in her voice. I hope that at least there's a modicum of satisfaction knowing how many people have her back and how she's bringing people together. All she wants to do is go and compete and represent her country, which is what she said. And she would do so very well. In fact, she might do it a little bit better than the U.S. women's soccer team. Do you see this? U.S. women's soccer team, they're a juggernaut. They've played really well. I think there's like dozens of games in a row. They hadn't lost a single game. But they've been bogged down in politics now recently. Megan Rapino, of course, leading the charge with the kneeling and the anthem stuff and that whole thing. Was that last year, I want to say? That's very divisive. And I made the point that Rapino sort of runs the show over there, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are teammates who don't want to go along with it, but she's kind of forcing people. It's like, okay, if you're really part of the team here, then you're going to get with my program. So they've been doing that. Then there was the anthem controversy recently that seemed to have been perhaps blown out of proportion. There was a misunderstanding about the flag and the anthem, a few other things. But when I think about U.S. women's soccer, in the past, it was like, they're really good. More recently, it's like, yeah, they're really good at soccer, 
but man, I wish that things weren't so woke and political. And I guess in their opening game in the Olympics, they got crushed. Huge upset. They lost 3 nothing to Sweden. And they knelt before the game. This is what the reports say. So the politics were on full blast, making their preening statement about whatever, social justice, whatever they're going to claim this was. So this is what they decided to do. Then they went out and lost 3 to nothing to Sweden. As I saw several people point out, they showed up to kneel, not so much to play. Maybe they can focus on soccer and winning as opposed to what message that they want to send to their benighted countrymen. I hate the fact that I was not just completely sad that Team USA lost. I want to root always for Team USA. Sometimes certain divisive figures and practices make it harder. What I do know, I'm not an expert on soccer, what I do know is losing 3 to nothing to Sweden is not good. But that's exactly what they did. So maybe they can stand on their two feet, focus on the game, and not so much on the politics. Just my hot take for the day. Now, they've knelt during the Star-Spangled Banner in the past, but this was not during the anthem. Because if I'm not mistaken in the Olympics, to hear your anthem, you've got to win the gold. So if they want the privilege of kneeling for the U.S. National Anthem again, in this context, they actually have to win. Maybe that's another added incentive to focus on the game and not the politics and other social justice causes. Again, that's just me. The Guy Benson Show resumes when we come back. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, he joins us next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Coming to you from Indianapolis, Indiana today and tomorrow. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day, regardless of where the show originates from. No charge. We are joined now by Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, just up the road here in the Midwest. He's from the 8th Congressional District in the Badger State. He serves on the House Armed Services and Transportation Committees. And it's great to have you back, sir. Welcome, Congressman. It's good to be with you, Guy. Thank you. First of all, congratulations. Your Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. I'm not a huge NBA guy at all, to put it lightly, but I watched the last few minutes last night, and that young star that the Bucks have is pretty impressive, and it was just cool to see the amount of enthusiasm throughout the state of Wisconsin. Uh, I hope there's enough beer in your state. I know there's a lot of beer in your state. I hope there's enough beer for these celebrations. Well, there's always enough beer in Wisconsin, but we probably uh, tested the limits of our overall supply last night. Uh, Giannis, uh, (laughs) the young star you mentioned, is absolutely incredible, and uh, it's been 50 years since the Bucks won an NBA championship. So 1971, let's hope we don't have to wait another 50 years, but it was just a great day for Wisconsin. Although, guys, the Lord giveth and he taketh away, because at the same time we're winning NBA championships, it looks like our star quarterback on the Green Bay Packers is not going to be coming back. So... It's a, real, it's a real precarious moment yeah. for Green Bay sports right now. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers may be on his way out, although that relationship seemed to have soured a while back, and I'm not entirely shocked by this development. But just enjoy the moment for now. Enjoy the Hoops championship, and then you can start worrying about football like tomorrow or the next day. In the meantime, Congressman, I want to ask you about a bill that you are sponsoring involving Taiwan. 
and strengthening U.S. ties to Taiwan. Briefly explain what you're trying to accomplish here. And then I got a few other things to mention involving the Chinese threat. Well, you know, I, I think at the broadest possible level, um, we need to wake up to the fact that uh, Taiwan is the critical uh, sort of area of competition for for geopolitics right now. Taiwan is is a legacy issue for Xi Jinping. He wants to reunify Taiwan with the mainland. Taiwan is a critical ally for us. Taiwan is a global powerhouse uh, in terms of semiconductor manufacturing. And therefore, Taiwan is really, in this new Cold War, what Berlin was in the old uh, Cold War. It's absolutely essential that we defend Taiwan from the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. And so my bill, the Taiwan Partnership Act, uh, would basically allow us to expand uh, defense uh, partnerships as well as state partnership programs between our National Guard and uh, Taiwan. And uh, so the goal is to just turbocharge state-level cooperation uh, with Taiwan with the goal of deterring an invasion. And so a small step forward, but critical nonetheless. We have a long way to go, however, in terms of our defense bill, fielding the capabilities that are necessary be they naval capabilities or Marine Corps capabilities to prevent this invasion, which I think is increasingly likely. I mean, we've had Admiral Davidson, the top military official in the Indo-Pacific region until recently, warn that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan could happen within the next six years, particularly after the, Be uh, the Beijing Olympics. We could see Xi Jinping get pretty frisky over Taiwan. And so we needed to act with a greater sense of urgency. And that's what this bill is all about. Yeah. And what you said worries me. I think that it is increasingly at least plausible that they would be considering an invasion, which would be outrageous. You might say, well, that's so outrageous. Why would, I, why would they do that? Except they've done a number of extremely outrageous things, whether it's lying about coronavirus and a disease that has now killed millions of people and covering it up, and they're still covering up the origins, or whether it's the latest detail out of Hong Kong where government officials and government thugs have come in and arrested several former journalists from the now closed Apple Daily newspaper. They forced that paper out of existence for being pro-democracy. And now just to really drive the point home, they're arresting journalists and throwing them in jail based on so-called national security concerns. And then you look at Xinjiang, the Uyghur genocide that is still underway. And Congressman, I want to get your reaction. Kodak, which is an American company, based in New York, the photography company, everyone's heard of Kodak. They are the latest in a long string of American organizations and companies, whether it's Nike or Disney or the NBA, which we just talked about with your bucks. Now Kodak, on their Instagram page, they had highlighted the work of a photographer who's French, I believe, who had gone to Xinjiang, taken a lot of photos. There was a caption on his personal page and also on this Instagram post that was very critical quoting him, very critical of what's happening in Xinjiang, the repression, the ethnic cleansing, the dystopia that the Chinese Communist Party has created there. And the CCP and their online trolls went crazy and started badgering Kodak, saying this is very offensive. How dare you spread this anti-China lie, even though it's not a lie at all. And Kodak, this American company, terrified of losing market share in a huge market like China, they took down the post and they issued an absolutely groveling, abject apology for any offense that may have been taken by anyone from a photographer calling out mass-scale human rights abuses in China. I feel like a lot of American and Western entities, Congressman, have a time to choose in the face of actual genocide, and they're choosing the wrong side. 
Well, I believe the uh, the photographer in this case uh, described Xinjiang as an Orwellian dystopia. And uh, that photographer is absolutely right. I mean, this is a modern-day concentration camp where uh, the Chinese Communist Party is perpetrating genocide. And that's not just the conclusion of the Trump administration. That's the conclusion of the Biden administration. That's the conclusion of the British Parliament. It's a conclusion of multiple allied countries. I mean, there's not much worse than genocide. And so I feel like these companies need to get a little bit of backbone and stand up for American values, Uh, particularly American companies, particularly American industries like the NBA, where we've seen some of the most egregious groveling and, you know, in in the face of the economic coercion from the Chinese Communist Party. And Guy, I'm glad you, you said that about a time for choosing, which, of course, alludes to Reagan's famous phrase. I do think that is where we're at. And, and I, you know, I know some people will criticize this as too blunt, but in certain areas, at least, it is time to choose between the free world and the values we stand for and the values of the Chinese Communist Party, which is perpetrating, again, a genocide right now. And these companies, I think, are deluding themselves to think that, well, we'll just do this now. We'll survive. We want access to the domestic market in China. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the whole essence of Made in China 2025, Xi Jinping's plan for expanding their domestic industries, is to dominate key industries and then kick out uh, Western companies. And so I think it's just it's totally naive on the part of these these uh, companies, in addition to just being weak and feckless and not aligned with American values. Right. It's it. The morals are wrong. The business decision ultimately could be wrong, but we're seeing it's really economic blackmail that the CCP is using to stifle not just criticism internally, where they arrest journalists and that sort of thing, but to stifle criticism externally from the West because of dollars and cents. And I think it's a very dangerous thing. Congressman, coming back to the home front in the United States, an interesting skirmish breaking out today involving the leadership in the House of Representatives There is this committee that Speaker Pelosi has formed to look into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This was after Congress ultimately rejected a bipartisan commission because Republicans blocked it in the Senate. Some Republicans voted in favor of it, but not enough. My position on it, just so you know, for the purposes of this conversation, and I know there are a lot of listeners who disagree, I was in favor of the bipartisan commission. I thought it was a relatively fair setup. I think it was a national disgrace what happened that day, and getting fully to the bottom of it is something that I support. Now you have this more partisan endeavor by the Democrats because the bipartisan option fell apart, Republicans saw to that, and Pelosi, I guess, wields veto power over the Republican members of this committee, of which there are five. So Leader McCarthy selected the five. He named them you know, just a day or two ago. And earlier this afternoon, Speaker Pelosi vetoed two out of the five, saying they can't participate in this select committee. Congressman Jim Jordan and Congressman Jim Banks from Ohio and Indiana. Now, I have disagreements with both of those guys on a couple key issues involving the election and certifying the results and all of that. But I feel like this is a strategic error by Pelosi to shoot down Republican slate, or at least part of the Republican slate, because it feeds into the narrative that Republicans are going to go for, which is this is an illegitimate, partisan, unserious exercise. And now Pelosi saying, yeah, we're not going to let certain people, sort of more MAGA types, be a part of this uh, committee at all. That's, in my view, kind of reinforcing one of the top potent critiques 
of what the Democrats are trying to do here. And I wonder what your position is as this whole thing plays out. Well, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's not easy for Republicans to just purely dismiss this effort and not participate because, you know, it's not like we tried to appoint or McCarthy tried to appoint Marjorie Taylor Greene or some of the most contentious members of the caucus to the commission. I mean, you can disagree with Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, uh, as I did on sort of the, the effort to object to the election. I had a different sort of view right. of what the Constitution demanded at that moment. But still, these are serious people, right? Um, you know, Banks was a serious member of Congress. We do a lot of national security work together. Uh, you know, and, and, and also McCarthy appointed you know, moderate members like Rodney Davis. So it, it, looking at the list of Republicans, I didn't get the impression that McCarthy was playing games at all. He nominated a very serious slate. But by disqualifying two of them, I really do think Pelosi has shot herself in the foot as I walk past her office right now, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, it, and it just made it easier for Republicans to dismiss that, this and sort of crossed an informal line here where I guess technically she has this authority, but in every instance, it's the case that each party gets to choose, gets to choose who serves on various committees. And I think that's a, at least an informal rule that uh, is good for the institution. And I worry about the escalation after this point. So I don't get it. It's, it's turning into pure partisan political theater. And unfortunately, we're never going to get, I think, some of the answers that you wanted, even though we may have had a difference of opinion of sort of the structure of the commission when we talked last time. Yeah. And so, I mean, I felt like some of the other moves were bad by the Republicans. And by disqualifying two out of the five members, she's disqualified the bipartisan nature of this special committee endeavor. And she's given ammo to the Republicans to make that case, saying this is not legit. It's not above board. It's not going to be fair. That's a much easier substantive case to make now. And Kevin McCarthy has reacted by saying, OK, we're not going to participate at all if this is your decision. So we'll see where it goes from here. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, always enjoy these conversations. Please come back again soon. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed it. We're going to step aside and come back. And when we do, I've got an update on that Ben and Jerry story that we've now touched on twice. There's a new twist, and you kind of have to laugh so you don't cry. We'll talk about that, plus an absolutely preposterous idea from a D.C. council member it's time for Woke Tales when we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Always glad that you're listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And it is that time again here on the program. Yes, it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! There's something about this Ben and Jerry's story that is more addictive even than Americone Dream, which is my favorite flavor of theirs, although their pistachio is also really good. I have overlooked for years their left-wing politics because I just like ice cream. And I try not to live my life where every single thing is based on politics. They do make it hard sometimes. (laughs) And so we mentioned how they were under criticism and had not been posting on their social media feeds for weeks, which is very strange for them because they're often talking about ice cream and delicious 
confections and then left-wing politics as well. And that all went away for a while. They had posted about a new mint flavor, and they got deluged by left-wingers and quote-unquote pro-Palestinian activists. They would call themselves pro-peace, but in many cases I can't really say that that's accurate. But in any case, the pro-Palestinian contingent descended upon their Twitter feed at Ben & Jerry's demanding justice or something because Ben & Jerry's not only sells their ice cream in Israel, but also in the Palestinian territories, including in areas that the Palestinians are angry about, Israeli settlements. And so this was the thing that they decided, that the woke left-wing mob, which strangely sort of sets a inequity when it comes to actual bigots and terrorists like Hamas. It's, it's a very unusual thing to watch. But they decided we're going to pressure Ben and Jerry. They're an easy mark, right? Ben and Jerry's, because they're hardcore progressives, pressure campaigns from their own people will probably get their attention because it's their own team, right? It's friendly fire. So indeed, All these comments came flying in. What are you doing? Justice, how dare you sell your ice cream and distribute it in the occupied territories? And you are complicit in all that. It goes on and on. So Ben and Jerry's fell silent for quite a while. Then they came out and said, we are, in fact, no longer going to do this. And the media helped stoke these embers. There were newspaper articles. Why are they so quiet? What are they doing here? So the pressure became too much. And so the company came out with a statement saying we're no longer going to sell our ice cream or distribute it in the so-called occupied territories of Palestine. Occupation, of course, being a buzzword for the anti-Israel people, which, of course, that crowd is shot through with anti-Semitism as well, much like the caramel in American Dream, except not so sweet. And they hoped that this would be satisfactory to this group of activists. Except what's amusing about it, some people declared victory like, oh good, we've achieved some justice here. But what the justice actually looks like, and we mentioned this yesterday, is they're not going to be able to sell or buy Ben & Jerry's ice cream in the Palestinian territories. So the people affected by this, overwhelmingly, are Palestinians who might like the ice cream, now they can't buy it anymore. It'll still be widely available in Israel, just not in the Palestinian territories, which is interesting. And now there's another development that piggybacks on it, which, again, you just have to kind of chuckle. The distributor that Ben & Jerry's is abandoning, now saying that they're going to have to lay off their Palestinian workers who made a really good wage and a really good living in the Palestinian territories. They're not going to have jobs anymore because of this progress. Doesn't it taste delicious? where you can't get the ice cream if you're a Palestinian anymore, and you can't work there and have a really good, well-paying, secure job anymore because of this decision to stick it to Israel with some rhetoric. I'm not really sure these aging hippies thought all of this through, but they had to do something because silence is violence. And what they did is this. Congratulations. They just keep making everything better. They're really helping the Palestinian cause here, aren't they? Finally, in Woke Tales, I saw this. An at-large D.C. council candidate is expected to propose a new ballot initiative 
a black autonomy act which would create autonomous african-american areas within dc only for black people with their own legislature their own mayor kind of sounds a lot like what's the word i'm looking for oh segregation that's it it's almost as if the hardcore race obsessed woke people and the white supremacist racists have a lot more in common than they might want to admit and with that let's wrap it up final hour of the guy benson show coming up martha mccallum my guest when we return new from the fox news podcasts network my name is kennedy and welcome to my podcast which will i humbly say single-handedly save the world you're welcome it's kennedy saves the world subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com it's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Indianapolis, Indiana. Delighted to have you along. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time here in Indiana and the Hoosier State today and tomorrow. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It is terrific. More and more of you are learning that because you're trying it. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where the product is sold near you or order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. With that, let's get to actually a fan of the long drink. A friend of ours, a colleague, it's Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, 3 p.m. Eastern every weekday, also the co-anchor, political co-anchor of Fox News, author of the book Unknown Valor. She also has a podcast, The Untold Story, foxnewspodcast.com, where you can also get our podcast. Martha, great to have you back. Great to be here, Guy. It was also, I have to say briefly, a real treat to hang out with you and your family at your beautiful new home up in Cape Cod a few weeks ago. We had, at least on my end, maybe a little too much fun, but very memorable. We had a great time. Thank you (laughs) for your hospitality. Too much fun was had by all, which is very, um, which is a great thing to do in the summer. And it was, it was so fun to see you. And um, you know, it, it's. Uh, I think everybody is having a good time, kind of getting in a little bit of summer this year, right? Although there's a lot going on, heck of a lot going on. There is, especially involving the virus, because I think a lot of people were like, "Okay, the vaccines are here. This thing is over." Overall, that is actually still my position. But it seems like a lot of people are really very anxious about the Delta variant and people already talking about sort of going backwards on some of these restrictions and masks and questions about schools and other events. I want to read to you, Martha, a statement today from the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. I don't know if you saw this quote, but it's resonating with a lot of people. He said, quote, I no longer have any intention of sacrificing my life, my time my freedom, and the adolescence of my daughters, as well as their right to study properly, for those who refuse to be vaccinated. This time you stay at home, not us. And I have to say, that's kind of where I am in a lot of ways. 
Well, I think it demonstrates a couple of things, uh, one of which is that people are I don't think people have any appetite to go back to the kind of lockdown that we all experienced. And I think that there's still a lot of questions that only history will answer about how necessary a lot of that lockdown was, especially when it comes to children. Uh, The indications so far are that this Delta variant is resulting um, in not serious illness, and we certainly hope that it stays that way. I think there are a lot of question marks about the the vaccine in terms of how well it covers this particular variant, and I think that's something that's being studied right now. I'm not uh, an infectious disease specialist, so I, I don't know how that will come out either. I think it's very interesting that you know several of these lawmakers appear to have been vaccinated and still got it, but from all the reporting that we can see at this point, they experienced something akin to a cold. So I, I do think, you know, I've said since the beginning that I think it's important for people to get vaccinated. I got vaccinated right away. I was very enthusiastic that the process for creating this vaccine went as miraculously quickly as it did. I think we still need to go back and remember that as part of this whole process that, you know, it's extraordinary that we have these vaccines at this point. And I certainly hope that they diminish the threat from this new variant. But I think everybody's got to take a deep breath on this variant. And, um, and you know, get a good look at it. I was just looking back at, at the India cases because India experienced this variant. And I remember asking doctors then when this was a terrible situation in India. Uh, it was you know, called the Indian what they variant. Thought of it. Yeah, and I thought, well, this, and I, I asked a lot of them, you know, so this is going to be coming our way too, right? And um, they, oh, you know, we don't think it's going to be a problem. But so, of course, I think this variant's been around even longer than than we know, probably. But, you know, their biggest blip in, in uh, tragic outcomes in India happened in May, on May 23rd. And now they have come down um, considerably from there. So, you know, we're, we're watching it. We're keeping close eye on it. But I just would encourage people not to panic and to, um, to put a lot of stock in the vaccine that we have right now. Right. And, right. Uh, and certainly get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated. Um, you know, I, I always put in a plug for this. I don't think there's been enough studies done on the antibodies um, in terms of, of if you had COVID um, and whether or not that is a, a equivalent to having the vaccine, because both are the option of the, the goal of both COVID, the virus naturally occurring and the vaccine is to build in the bodies in your in your business, in your body. That's what happens from both of these things. So I'm just encouraging the CDC to look into all of that more so that maybe um, we can get a, a better handle on, on how, how strong those antibodies are. Right, because it seems like natural immunity is pretty strong against COVID and getting it again if you've already survived it once. Yeah. There was a study, and the New York Times had a big write-up about it. If you have natural immunity, having survived COVID, and you get vaccinated, you're almost superhuman in your impenetrability for this virus in the future, which I think is an appealing combination. I never did an antibody test. I don't think I ever had COVID you know, prior to getting vaccinated, but... I guess you never really know people who went through COVID and had a tough time. Of course, they do know. And to your point, Martha, about the vaccines and this variant, what we seem to have a pretty good handle on is that the vaccines work extremely well at preventing bad outcomes. There will be breakthrough cases. There might be even more breakthrough cases than we initially had anticipated. But those cases are so mild as to be asymptomatic or barely symptomatic to me, that is a great outcome. Give me a light cold or an asymptomatic infection any day over a really tough COVID infection. And from what Absolutely. I've heard from the doctors on this show, yes, Delta variant is more 
transmissible. Yes, it is more contagious, which means it would spread more quickly, but it would not be more virulent in terms of the actual load of the virus. So it's not more dangerous than just regular old COVID. It's just more contagious. So that means if you're unvaccinated, you're at a similar risk as you would have been. If you're vaccinated, it's not like you have a 0% chance of transmitting the virus, although it is heavily diminished, but you have almost no chance of going to the hospital or dying, which is kind of the whole ball game here. That, that goes to your point about not panicking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the best thing that you can do to protect yourself is to, to be vaccinated, which we have said all along. Um, and the other element is whether or not you've had COVID before. And, you know, one of the interesting studies, and this is just one study, it's not, you know, completely conclusive. They did a Cleveland Clinic study of 55,000 people found that people who had COVID, um, it says, importantly, not a single incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection was observed in previously infected participants with or without the vaccination. So, um, you, you know, this, I just, the reason I keep talking about this is just because I'm personally really curious about it. I think this is one of the things that we're going to learn down the road is that we didn't do enough figuring out who had antibodies when we rushed to vaccinate everyone. Because the argument of this study is that there are so many countries around the world where they still don't have access to vaccines. So what we need to know is how many people have natural antibodies so that we can start funneling those other vaccines to places where they don't have any and then circle back around and give them to people who have already um, built their own antibodies, which according to this study lasts for at least 10 months after the symptom onset or a positive test result. So, you know, I just think that there's still a lot we don't know at this point, but um, clearly you want one or the other for sure. Um, And the the most sort of foolproof way of, of protecting yourself is clearly a vaccine. Right, the least painful way and the least risky way, because this is the point that I've heard from some of my friends who have been hesitant to get vaccinated. And we have these conversations like it's okay to have these conversations and I don't browbeat them or yell at them. I'm just, you know, we go back and forth and they'll say, well, look, I'm younger, I'm healthier. If I'm going to get the Delta variant at some point, if it's this contagious, you know, I'll just be okay. Like it won't be that bad. I'll go through it for a week or two. Then I'll have the immunity. And I'd rather do that than put a vaccine in my body. And the response that I come back with is, first of all, if there are people who are older or more vulnerable or don't know about pre-existing condition or underlying condition, you don't want to 100% bank on the fact that you'll be just fine. You probably will. You'll probably get out of it overwhelmingly, but you might not. There are still exceptions to that rule, and you don't want to be one of those statistical anomalies if you can avoid it. And secondly, even if you do get through it and you survive and you never have to go to the hospital or whatever, there are very unpleasant side effects, long-term symptoms that a significant chunk of COVID sufferers get, long-term complications on your sort of uh, neurosystem, on your heart. These are things that are avoidable through the vaccine. That's my counterpoint to the people who are just sort of waiting, saying just, you know, come at me, virus, I'll survive you. Very likely they will. Like, very likely that's true, but there are risks as well, and I think it's worth having those adult conversations. I I agree with you. I mean, I think um, a lot of people, you know, got the virus before the vaccine came out, so they didn't have that option. Yep. Um, but I think now exactly. it's going to the category of never having had it. Uh, and not being vaccinated, well, then you got two strikes against you. So, I, and, and that's the highest risk category that's out there right now that we know. Um, so that's definitely something that you want to um, 
that, that you want to take care of right away. And I would just add that if you are one of those people who had it before, um, it, you know, before the vaccine came around, um, then we need to have more studies done that shows what the impact is for you when you get right. a double dose of vaccine. Um, yep. You know, because I've had some doctors say, look, if you had it, I would recommend only one shot. But of course, one shot doesn't get you in the door to, you know, work if you work at a mandatory place or school. So if we have more studies, there are 33,000 people that work at the CDC. They have a $40 billion budget and they've spent less than half a billion um, on COVID and studies. So it seems like we've put all of our effort, and thank God we did, into getting this vaccine. But now the conversation is 100% focused on that, which, you know, I understand that to a great extent, too. But let's figure out, let's figure out, you know, for all of these folks who had it, what's the best thing for them? Because there's, a, I think there's probably a much larger population than we realize who had it. And um, we just need to have oh, a better definitely. understanding of what, what category they fall in when it comes to how much vaccine they should have. Well, I mean, there were there were tens of millions of people probably who got COVID and survived it before we even really had tests or available tests. So that's why, like mm-hmm. the official number that I give at the top of every single show, experts say, yeah, it's in the 30 million range, 33 million or so now in the United States. But it's probably well over 100 million people who actually have had it in this country. Right. And that's on top of the vaccination. So uh, your point is well taken there. Martha, I want to just shift briefly. We only have a few minutes left. But you and I in the last few days have each had the opportunity, I would call it a privilege, to interview Masi Alinejad, who mm-hmm. has avoided, thank God, a kidnapping plot by the Iranian regime against her as a journalist on U.S. soil. Really brazen stuff. I was filling in for Kennedy and I talked to her. I saw that she was on the story right after this revelation broke and the indictment against some of these Iranian operatives who were planning this. I just kind of feel like this is an undercovered story, especially given the fact that the Biden administration is practically begging to get back to the negotiating table on the nuclear deal with this regime that just had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, was actively planning to snatch an American Iranian journalist out of New York City, take her on a boat to Venezuela, fly her home and probably execute her just for being a critic of the regime. That should be like a a giant red flag about the way Iran behaves and the way they perceive the new administration. But it seems to have gotten a little bit of coverage a few places like what we just talked about on your show and, and here. And mostly just sort of floated off into oblivion, which I find actually kind of disturbing. This should be a really big scandal. I agree with you 100%. I've, I've spoken with Mati uh, several times over the past several years because I was first intrigued by her when she wrote a book called The Wind in My Hair, and she wrote it about her desire for women in Iran to be free enough to take the burqa off and to uh, the hijab off and to let their hair, let the wind flow through their hair. And she talked about coming to the United States and having that feeling for the first time in her life and how liberating it was. So she started, you know, basically speaking out for reform for women in Afghanistan. She started um, uploading videos that women would send her of these incredibly courageous acts that they were pulling off in Tehran, where they would ride a bike down the street. Because that's an incredibly courageous act for a woman in Tehran Mm -hmm. to do. Uh, You know, women have absolutely no rights. They can't open a business. They can't take out a loan. They can't, you know, drive their car around. And they certainly can't take off their hijab and ride their bike down the street. So she has this beautifully symbolic and real um, expression of of what, of the kind of freedom she wants to see in, in Tehran. This has terrified the leadership in Tehran, because she has a very large following. She's also um, 
put videos on uh, the Internet that show people being beaten in the streets of Tehran. So she is getting the word out about things that they don't want people to know about or understand. And that is they arrested her brother and they've now sentenced him to eight years in prison in Tehran. These are really obviously very personal, painful terrible things for her to endure on behalf of her family for the fact that she's speaking out. But they've encouraged her not to stop, to keep going, because she's a very strong person and she's expressing um, the desire for freedom. So she now has a meeting with uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, which I know she's grateful for. Um, but wouldn't it be amazing for this administration to to stand up for the rights of women, uh, to stand up for freedom uh, from oppression in Iran, and to put her on stage, um, you know, at the White House and say, we, we commend you. We commend the work you did. We're grateful for the fact that we were able to support this uh, attempt to, to kidnap you and take you back to your country and try you and, and probably also, never let you out of prison again. Yeah, I mean, if, if they didn't execute her, honestly, because they just executed a yeah. dissident that they kidnapped abroad. I mean, this is what they do. And I'm so glad that you talked about her courage because that word gets thrown around a lot. I saw one of the Democratic lawmakers from Texas who are delinquent. They're mm-hmm. in D.C. She referred to herself as brave in a tweet. Mm-hmm. It's just nonsense. The true oh, definition of courage and bravery is embodied by people like Masi Alinejad. And I'm glad that you highlighted her story on your show. And it's something that we're following closely here. Martha, up on a break here. Always enjoy these conversations. The story every day, 3 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Appreciate it, Martha. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Guy. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Broadcasting from Indianapolis, and I'm actually looking out the window of my hotel room right now, and just a really beautiful scene. There's the NCAA headquarters that I can see. That's exciting. The Indiana State Museum here. There's a minor league baseball field down here to my left. Some people in the stands. And I did get, I'm just going to call it a walking tour of downtown Indianapolis earlier. It was not by design. It was not guided. I was getting lunch, and I really wanted, surprise, a Coke Zero, especially before they changed the formula, which has me furious. And I may or may not have gone to nine different establishments until I finally found Coke Zero. Finally found it at the second subway (laughs) that I went into. Guess it's maybe there's a lot of Pepsi in this town. I don't know. Then you have the dreaded, no, we have Diet Coke. Nope, that is not the same, sir. Thank you very much. But nine places in, I got my oversized fountain beverage, Coke Zero. I may or may not have a problem. (laughs) I was slightly late to the team meeting to plan today's show. And I said I was late because I had to find one product and I had a struggle. Would you like to guess what that is? And producer Christine cut me off. She's like, don't even need to know anymore. It was Coke Zero, wasn't it? I said, yeah, I'm a fan. Sue me. Leave the recipe alone, Coke, please. The happy hour continues after this. GuyBensonShow.com It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show, and we are in Indiana, the Hoosier State. And earlier in the program today, we caught up 
with Indiana U.S. Senator Mike Braun. A lot to get to, including some drama, sort of, in the Senate today, with a huge amount of spending coming down the pike, at least proposed by the Democrats. Here's part of that conversation with Senator Mike Braun from right here in Indiana. So things got a little wild yesterday during a hearing, pretty hostile. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Rand Paul, your Republican colleague in the Senate, went at it during a hearing. Here's just a little taste of how personal it got. Very snippy. Cut two. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. The gain-of-function research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. That is can't not... get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. I'm not obfuscating the truth. So Fauci uh, really going after Rand Paul there. And what's interesting in the accusation here, and it's about so-called gain-of-function research and whether Fauci and the NIH and the U.S. government funded some of that research. Josh Rogan from the Washington Post tweeted this yesterday after the exchange. Hey, guys, Rand Paul was right and Fauci was wrong. The NIH was funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but NIH pretended it didn't meet their gain-of-function definition to avoid their own oversight mechanism. Sorry, not sorry, if that doesn't fit your favorite narrative. That's the Washington Post's Josh Rogan siding with Rand Paul. I don't think Rand Paul's going to get Fauci on perjury charges. There's enough gray area here. But that was one of the big blow-ups from yesterday. You were there, Senator. What was your takeaway not just from that exchange necessarily, but Fauci's performance, because unsurprisingly, it's very polarized, the reaction to it. So I was watching that actually from my office, because generally I come in about 15 to 20 minutes after uh, Rand Paul, and by the time he is done with Fauci, Fauci's not in a very good mood. But uh, when I watched it, uh, he is getting himself into a corner. I didn't know uh, the tweet from uh, uh, Washington Post there. That would pretty well nail it in the sense that he is getting, I think, on this one issue of the origin and how the NIH, and especially his particular agency within it, was so part and parcel of what happened. And then apologizing early on uh, for the Chinese government, uh, World Health Organization being so close with it, all of that is flipped the other way. And it w would be different if it wasn't in the context of what I mentioned to Fauci when I talked to him in that, you know, he's been all over the place in terms of any issue surrounding COVID. So the credibility factor uh, was uh, weakening uh, a long time ago. Uh, obviously, he likes to, you know, uh, express his opinion, but I thought Rand really had him in a difficult spot. And whether I don't think uh, there will be perjury issues brought against him because that would have to be initiated by the folks that have been tolerating that. Uh, I think he is down to where his credibility rating is getting close to a 1 on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, yeah, except among, except among Democrats who kind of worship him, and he seems to like that worship. He revels in it. He's on TV constantly. I have grown more hostile toward him. I was never a Fauci hater. I respect him still in a lot of ways, but the fact that he is more or less admitted to at least telling white lies about masks, telling a white lie about herd immunity in order to manipulate public opinion and sort of like 
adjust people's expectations and that sort of like expectations management rather than just telling us the truth. You add that on top of his downplaying of the lab leak theory early and now saying, well, he didn't really downplay it. I mean, there's a credibility problem there. So I did want to ask you, since you were a part yeah, of that I mean, hearing that got a lot of attention yesterday, uh, briefly go ahead because I have one other subject that I want to get to. And I ask him uh, real quickly uh, two areas. Uh, how close is his relationship with uh, Facebook and uh, Zuckerberg? And basically said he's on an email uh, relationship, if not a phone call basis. I also ask him and Walensky, would either of you ever mandate vaccines uh, for kids going into grade school. And they gave the typical two-step of that, well, it depends on the data. And uh, they're on record there as being wobbly as well. Let's see what happens if that becomes an issue down the road. Okay, Senator. Meanwhile, there is news just breaking out of the U.S. Senate. Minutes ago, the Senate voting to block what Senator Schumer wanted, which was to open debate, a cloture vote to get onto an infrastructure bill. You and I have talked about the infrastructure negotiation and the infrastructure deal that was bipartisan, and, and we, we both actually are fairly positively disposed to the broad outline of it. My full interview with Senator Mike Braun available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. That's where the podcast awaits you every day, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, it is National Hot Dog Day. Are we going to have a dumb debate about hot dogs and what to put on them? You bet. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Hi, Indianapolis, Indiana. You look great. And the rest of you, you all look fabulous. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. And it's not really hard to swindle us here at the show into talking about food, because we do it almost all the time, almost every show, it feels like. And today is, in fact, National Hot Dog Day. Hot dogs being a product that I enjoy, that I eat from time to time, and never, ever, ever want to know what is in this quasi-food product. I just don't want to know. It's meat, and that's fine. And it's really about the toppings. I don't mind a hot dog that's, you know, steamed or boiled. I like them grilled. Sometimes you can fry them up in a frying pan. You broil them. I'm not that picky. But Barstool Sports tweeted out a photo, a series of photos, in fact, that were destined to become controversial. The question in the tweet, in honor of National Hot Dog Day, what number is the correct way to eat a hot dog? So there are six options that they've given America. And it's about the toppings. The buns all look basically the same with one exception. So image number one, is a hot dog with yellow American mustard generously drizzled across the top. Pretty standard. Hot dog number two is ketchup and nothing else on the hot dog sitting in that bun. Option three is the hot dog in a bun covered, and it looks like 
yellow mustard, and relish. There are some flecks of red. I thought for a second that might be ketchup, but I think it's just part of the relish. So it's mustard, yellow mustard, and relish. Option four is the hot dog with sauerkraut and yellow mustard. Option five. Now here you've got the bun looks a little toasted or grilled in this case, which is delicious. But I think the key is the toppings. Hot dog, chili, red onions, shredded cheese. And finally, option six, that's just the Chicago-style hot dog. With the poppy seed bun, you've got mustard, you've got iridescent green relish. You know when it's like so green, it looks like it came out of some sort of nuclear plant? That's what we're seeing here. And then a pickle, slices of tomato, and little peppers. That is the Chicago-style hot dog. So those are your six options. So we were texting about it on the group thread, and we had differences of opinion here. Let me just start by ruling out, from my perspective, number six, the Chicago hot dog. Never got into them when I was living in Chicago. Never really got into deep dish pizza either. Sorry, Chicago. You've got great food in a lot of ways. And there's like Pequod's pizza, fantastic. Occasionally some Lou Malnati's. But I am much, much, much more of a New York pizza guy. We've talked about this. Chicago-style pizza isn't really pizza. It's like like a, a casserole or something other than pizza. And I don't, with all respect... I don't like all the toppings on a Chicago-style hot dog, which is ironic because I actually like each of the toppings. I like pickles. I love tomatoes. I like peppers. The way that they pile these things onto a hot dog, it's just unnatural and strange. So I'm ruling out number six. I'm not against any of the other options. I would eat any of the other ones. But I do personally have a favorite. But you have to pick. Right? From Barstool, the question is, which is correct? One, two, three, four, five, or six. So, Wyatt, what was your answer? My answer was number two. That is not surprising. Just a hot dog with ketchup, and that's all. Now, this is controversial. Some people say you should never put ketchup on a hot dog. I don't believe that. I don't like ketchup as the only topping for a hot dog. If you have to pick just one topping, it's mustard, in my opinion. I like a spicy brown mustard more than an American yellow, but not ketchup. But Wyatt has cast his vote. Producer Christine, your vote. Number four, sauerkraut, mustard. Sauerkraut. I, I had forgotten, even though we've talked about sauerkraut somewhat recently, I'd forgotten. I just put it out of my mind that you're a big sauerkraut gal. I don't mind it. I don't hate it, but it would never be at the top of my list. So sauerkraut and mustard, that's your call. All right, Max. I'm still stuck between number one, which is just plain mustard, or number five with the chili cheese dog. You know me with a lot of toppings, chili, cheese, and I even see there's a little red onion on top, which is a nice little kick. Overall, I think I would choose number five, actually. Except, here's my argument on that. At some point, a chili cheese dog almost becomes a separate food than a hot dog. Like, I know there's a hot dog component to it, but now you've got multiple other types of food on this creation. I feel like if the question is how to properly eat a hot dog, 
I would argue, within your own reasoning, I would argue that, number one, just the mustard is the correct answer to that simple question. Yeah, I don't like the way this is worded. What's the correct way? I mean, all of them are kind of correct, maybe besides of number four, the sauerkraut and mustard, Christine. I think sauerkraut tastes like a shoe that's been sitting in the rain for a long time or something. <laughs> it's just so sour and, and smelly. I don't know. A, a shoe that's been sitting in the rain. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, like, like I said, all of them are correct, but I preferably, if I were to give the option, say if I was at a, a cookout or something or a barbecue, I'd choose number five if they had the chili and the mm, cheese all right. and all the ingredients. All right. I'm going with number three, where you've got the mustard and the relish. I really like relish. I would say the critique is there's a little too much relish in this exact photo. And as I said, I prefer the spicy brown mustard. But if you have brown mustard, relish, and yes, a little bit of ketchup. I like ketchup to be in the taste profile. I like to have it included, just not on its own for the hot dog. That's my answer. And people are all yelling at each other. And it's extremely unimportant. I cannot underscore how unimportant this is. It matters so little, and yet it's so fun to talk about. And I can't help but raise a certain memory here, since we're on the subject of hot dogs. One of the first things I ever learned about producer Christine is that, I want to say a decade or more ago, earlier in her radio career, she lost a bet or something, and she had to go out into Times Square in a hot dog costume. Now, that wouldn't be that unusual these days, because there's a lot of weird characters in plush costumes out in Times Square taking money for photos, and it's gross. So maybe she actually would make a few bucks out there these days. But she lost a bet, and in this case, she actually paid up, because she still owes us French onion soup on a lost bet from at least a year ago. I want Like 2019, 2020, she lost a bet. We've played it back. We have it on the record. And she still refuses to actually pay up because she lost. And this is why I don't bet with her anymore, because she is a sore loser and a liar when it comes to these things. So she needs to drink French onion soup if she wants to get the liar label removed. But that's it, it still applies. But in this case, she did the supposedly embarrassing thing. See, this is the thing. I think she lost this bet and was delighted to lose the bet. I think she wanted to be in that hot dog suit. What was the context here, Christine? Why were you waltzing around in public dressed as a wiener? Ooh, I lost a bet years ago. I had said that Anthony Wiener was going to be the next mayor of New York City. And I really, truly believed it. So much so that I said, if he loses, put me in a wiener costume and get me in Times Square. And unfortunately, that's, well, I mean, I guess fortunately for the city, unfortunately for Cookie, I was out in the middle of Times Square asking, I had to buy a round of hot dogs and then my costume asked if anybody wanted my wiener. Is that a thing, a round of hot dogs? And I will say, having seen the photo, frankly, you do look ridiculous, but you look like you're having a pretty good time. And this goes to my theory. I think you were very happy. I think you wanted this. I think that you enjoyed this supposed humiliation, which is why, as I said, it was. I learned about this very early on in our relationship. There's a lot of layers of the cookie onion that get peeled off from time to time, and I learn things, and I'm sort of blown away that I never learned them before. I saw this photo of you in the hot dog suit very early, and 
you tend to bring it up in conversation a lot. And when you're meeting new people, it's, hi, I'm Christine. I work at Fox News Radio. Can I tell you such an embarrassing story? Look at me in this hot dog costume. I think you love the hot dog costume. I think this is part of your icebreaker routine. You want people to see this. You have a strange, twisted pride in this whole incident. You relish this, if you will. I think you want to do it again. That's what I think. I definitely don't. So thank you very much. But no, it was very embarrassing. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, you tell me though. It is a great story. Come but on. But if it's it's so what embarrassing, it's like it's like within within ten minutes of meeting a stranger, you're showing people this photo on your phone. That is not true. Not true. I think it's true. And I will never, I will never be in a hot dog costume again. Mark my words. Yeah, maybe you'll be in a hot dog costume eating French onion soup because you were wrong about Anthony Weiner. You were wrong about Hillary Clinton running for president in 2020, which was the bet that you lost with me and then haven't paid yeah. up because, because, frankly, you lied about this. Christine, you live for this. And this whole thing of, oh, no, it's, it's, so, it's so bad. It's so embarrassing. It reminds me of, like, hot people on Instagram, thoughts, you might even call them who will post some, like, very posed, revealing photo of themselves on the beach or, you know, in a swimsuit or shirtless for the guys or whatever, and then the caption will be like, look at me being so lazy. It's like people want others to see this. This is you in the hot dog costume, I'm convinced. We need to get that photo and tweet it. At Guy Benson Show. Wyatt, tweet out producer Christine in the costume. She'll get a kick out of it. She'll love it. She'll be counting the likes and retweets all night long. Guy Benson Show on Twitter. Guy Benson Show from Indiana, back here tomorrow. Talk to you then. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at Show.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.